0: Fighting Through World War II, episode 95, Dunkirk Special Part 2, with Major Robert Metcalfe. More great unpublished history. In 1978-79, I worked in North Africa at a plant at Brega in the west near Benghazi. My dad nearly fell over when I told him where I was working. My grandfather worked at the Ford Willow Run plant. During World War II, he was on the line helping to build B-24 heavy bombers. He had a secret. My dad grew up in New Guinea. He once told me a story of when, long after the war had ended he went for a walk in the jungle and found an old Japanese supply depot with all the remains. I was drafted January the 1st, a week after my 15th birthday, and my military career ended up in a French prison camp. I'm Paul Cheel. Welcome back to part two of this Dunkirk special with Major Robert Metcalf's memoirs and much more. For the sake of continuity, I'm going to go straight into part two of the memoir and then I've got some excellent listener contributions to share with you, plus some more Bob Metcalfe material, which, as usual, you do not want to miss in the PS... Here's the last few minutes of the previous episode so you can pick up where we left off where Bob has pretty much just got back to England and he's rueing the loss of some of his comrades. I was talking to a petty officer as we cleared the harbour when there was a terrific bump on the side of our ship. For God's sake, hold your breath and pray. It's a mine! It took from 6pm until 2am the next morning to go the distance. The Havant and Grafton were torpedoed on the way over by German e-boats. My ship, the Grenade, was sunk on its return to Dunkirk to evacuate more troops. Once more, I was a lucky one. So many of my comrades were lost. Had Hitler followed through after Dunkirk, the only force in England capable of withstanding his attack was 1st Canadian Infantry Division. And listener, the boys made it home. Part 2. Regrouping. On 27th of May... 1940 there were six hospital trains lined up in dover station each destined for a different part of england i didn't know to which part of the uk i was to go until 10 minutes before departure when the oc train came around and announced we were bound for sedgefield county durham i couldn't believe my luck sedgefield was just 20 miles from my home After an eight or nine hour trip being shunted back and forth and delayed by various wartime contingencies we finally arrived at Sedgefield and were transferred by ambulance to the Winterton Hospital. I was assigned to an officer's ward. It was late at night before we were bedded down and it wasn't until the following morning I was to find out who my neighbours were on either side. That morning I met Captain Basil Bartlett of the Field Security Police, who occupied the bed to my left. Pre-war, he'd been one of Britain's outstanding character actors and resumed his acting career following the war. It turned out we'd been on passing ships in the night, for he'd boarded the HMS Grafton, when after leaving Dunkirk, it had stopped at Bray June to pick up more evacuees. Being one of the last to embark, he found there was no room left for him in the wardroom assigned to the officers, so he had settled himself in a corner of the captain's cabin topside. That was to be his salvation. Shortly after the Grafton continued on course in the early hours of twenty ninth of May, a torpedo ripped through the officers' wardroom, killing 35. A sister ship... The HMS Ivanhoe was first to the rescue, but was still taking on survivors, which included Bartlett, when a second torpedo strike caused such a fire on the Grafton that it soon became impossible to save those still on board. There was much confusion, and so many aircraft in the area. My ship, too, had taken on some of the Grafton's passengers, but one thing was clear. The only humane action was to finish off the Grafton as quickly as possible. The Ivanhoe's guns did the job. This was to happen a number of times during the war, when a ship ablaze had to be quickly sunk by friendly fire, hastening the inevitable so that those trapped on board might at least be spared a long and agonising death. Bartlett had escaped the fate that, as earlier related, would take the life of my friend Ian Donking. My hospital neighbour to my right was Captain Cowdery of the Surrey and Sussex Yeomanry, who'd been reconnoitering a route for his unit on the retreat to Dunkirk. He and his driver were in a 1,500-weight truck and had stopped at a crossroads to check the maps. This was a British vehicle, of course, and Cowdrey himself was driving. Typically, the officers preferred to do the driving, trusting their own skills over their drivers. His right arm was hanging out of the window when he felt a punch and sensed something terribly wrong. He looked out of the window. His arm had been blown off, completely severed. It hung there in the remnants of his tunic sleeve. Lord Cowdery, to give him his civilian title, had been one of England's finest horsemen and had captained the British international polo team for many years before the war. Those days were now sadly past. My own wounds were not considered life-threatening, so it was about three days before I was operated on to remove the shrapnel from my legs. The surgeon couldn't find all the steel, but hoped what he left in would surface at some point in time. It eventually did, (laughs) 20 years later, after I'd emigrated to Canada. Unfortunately, just before metal detectors became commonplace in airports. So that's the end of Major Robert Metcalfe's Dunkirk period. Bob went on to fight in numerous other theatres of war, I've got some more extracts to share with you later. Right now I want to share a tribute from journalist and World War II veteran Douglas Fisher, who summed up Bob's war very well in the introduction to his book. Robert Metcalfe's war opens with mobilisation, turns to the phony war, and then after Dunkirk and the regrouping in England, comes the transfer of our author to the Middle East and so to the Desert War the invasion of Sicily, and to the long, grim Italian campaign. There's much of what is usually passed over quickly, i.e. details of logistics and insights on weapons, ammunition, equipment, supplies and engineering, and the story closes with what a pleasant measured post-war soliloquy. It is World War II, from beginning through the middle to the end. Amazingly, Sue Metcalfe has sent me a recording of her dad talking about his war, Dunkirk and beyond. It's only a few minutes, but it's very clear and all good history, and I think you'd like to hear it. I've decided to share it now because I think it adds a nice touch to what we've already heard. Here goes. My name is Robert
1: Metcalfe. I'm a war bridegroom who came over here in 1948 with my Canadian-born wife. Most of my military service I served with the Green Howards, the Yorkshire Regiment. I joined on the 4th of December 1935. The first contact I had with the war was in 1939. We mobilized on the 23rd of August. I went to France with the reconnaissance party of my regiment on the... 19th of January, 1940, my first battle was the Battle on Vimy Ridge. We battled with Rommel. Rommel commanded the 7th Panda Division. We fought for two days on the ridge. He drove us off there, and then we went north into Belgium. We made contact with the enemy at Ypres, at Meningate. Gate. I was a company commander by this time as a captain. And I received my orders for the defense of Ypres underneath the famous archway of Menin Gate. The next morning we went forward onto a place called Zillibeek Lake. We were in contact with the Germans, and I was wounded at Zillibeek Lake. I stopped a mortar bomb about eight o'clock in the morning. The ambulance arrived to take us to supposedly the casualty clearing station, the CCS four of my buddies were wounded at the same time and I was sitting with my back to the driver of the ambulance and as we went through Popring, the Luftwaffe attacked us. We got the other side west of Popring and I felt the ambulance pulling up. By turning around I could see through the window in the ambulance and I saw a German Mark III tank which was behind our lines he fired one machine gun, burst, but I think he did not detect the small red cross on the front of the ambulance, and he only fired one burst. The driver jumped out and left it in the middle of the road. I could see him in the ditch, and I shouted to him, I said, for God's sake, turn around and go back, and they eventually came back, and I expected a burst from the German tank, but... Uh, there was a bigger Red Cross on the side, I think possibly it recognized the Geneva Convention, and so we turned around and went back to Popbridge. During the Battle of Britain in September 1940, I was back here with my unit on the south coast near and alongside the Canadian 1st Division at Weymouth, and we saw the three air battles going on, and it was quite a thrill. However, that's passed, and from weymouth we went to western Supermare on the bristol channel there we went into training and eventually we were told we we're going to the middle east we sailed on the largest convoy that ever left the british isles we we're two months on the water and we were chased by the bismarck the famous german battleship and we yeah. were in the south atlantic by this time turning around the cape we went to south africa after that, we sailed again up through the Straits of Madagascar. We didn't know where we were going. We had just visions we were going to uh, North Africa. And we did. We arrived at Sewers on June ninth, 1941.
0: The full transcript of Bob talking there is in the show notes. I'm going to turn to other matters for a while. Um... A bit of war stuff now, a bit of feedback. Merv Williams replied to my coverage of his uncle's memoir in the last episode. Basil Williams, or Bal, was in the Royal Navy during the war and we heard that he'd served on a ship which had been at D-Day, having towed a Mulberry Harbour from Scotland, amongst other things. And, you know, the reality of that has only just dawned on me. I can't believe I didn't pick up on it in the last episode. Can you imagine being on a ship, towing a section of Mulberry Harbour behind you? Wow. Anyway, Merv said to me... To be, included in it, to be included in the episode is a great honour. It means a lot to me and my family. My nephew had literally no idea what his grandfather did in the war and he plans further investigation of his great-grandfather... I took the opportunity to visit my uncle's grave in June and the possibility that nobody had visited for 50 years was quite sad but I found the graves in very good order with roses freshly planted by the War Graves Commission. I'm at the moment recovering from treatment for a serious neck issue and hearing the podcast greatly lifted my spirits. Thank you from myself and my family, Merv Williams. Oh, thank you, Merv. That's a really touching comment, and I'm sure others will appreciate that too, and I hope your neck gets better soon. I had reason to drop Aussie veteran Les Cook a line recently to share some Facebook comments he'd had. Son-in-law Tony replied, Hi Paul, Les turned 100 in January this year, but is well and compass mentis, but a little wobbly on his feet. (laughs) But he's still able to mow the lawn. Recently, there was a ceremony at the Australian War Memorial to commemorate the Battle for Australia Day, which is essentially when the Kokoda campaign and the Japanese in New Guinea were threatening Australia, the troops withdrawn from Crete and the Middle East. And Tony's dropped me a few photographs, which I've put in the show notes and this one of particular interest, Tony says, is a propaganda poster from Japan. And the story Les tells is that this was when he was in a shop in Tokyo and he was part of the occupation forces. He told the shopkeeper to take the poster down, while at the same time fixing his bayonet to take it down himself. The shop owner apparently panicked, thinking he was going to be summarily executed. I've got some family stories now. This one's from the WW2 Stories of Chaos and Courage Facebook page. And this story's about Robert Goff. There are a few posts with some great pics and full links in the show notes. And this uh, family is entitled Dunkirk to North Africa, What Brave Men. Before the war broke out... My father, Billy Goff, had recently been in the army, serving in Palestine. My parents married in July 1939. Shortly after, a war broke out and he was sent to France with the BEF. Roberts posted uh, the image of a telegram from his dad to let my mum know that my dad had arrived safe from Dunkirk. The telegram says, Arrived England today, OK, Billy. Just five words, but enough to let his loved ones know that he'd survived. Someone's written on the bottom of the telegram. Arrived Ramsgate from Dunkirk Beach on cargo boat, 31st of May, 1940, after two days and one night on the beach. Funny, But that's the same day my dad sailed back. The Lady of Man wasn't a cargo boat, so they probably weren't on the same ship. Robert continues. After a short time at home, he was sent to Caterick for training, from where he was posted to North Africa. No arrangements had been made so as to see his wife before he went. Consequently, he went AWOL returning to duty just before the unit embarked for North Africa. He never spoke much about his service, but he was always ready to relate the hell of a crossing of the Bay of Biscay on the way to Africa. It seems there wasn't a soldier on board who wasn't seasick. He remained on active duty for the remainder of the war, all through the North Africa campaign and all through Italy, which included the horrors of Monte Cassino. Eventually, his unit was brought home just as they were about to get through the Brenner Pass in North Italy. Luckily, my mother and my elder sister had survived the bombing of Birmingham. She wasn't expecting him. I just can't imagine her reaction. My sister was three and a half and says she remembers it well. And I love this next bit. In 1978-79... to 79, I worked in North Africa at a plant at Marsa Brega in the west, near Benghazi. My dad nearly fell over when I told him where I was working. I knew he'd served in North Africa, but he never really talked about it. However, it seems he knew this area quite well, and he reeled off the names Brega, Benghazi, Tobruk, as if it was yesterday. On the plant where we worked, the ground was strewn with empty cartridge cases. Clearly, there'd been a lot of action around there. As a joke, so as to remind him of the time he spent chasing Rommel across the desert, I sent sent him a small sachet of desert sand to put in his tea. You should have had some flies as well, Robert. The photos... Show my dad with his cap badge showing he was in the shiny 10th, the 10th Royal Hussars. And the group photo is on the far right, munching a hard tack biscuit. Strange how they're all wearing great coats. It just shows how cold it can be, even in the desert. Look at them, just ordinary lads to whom we owe so much. All those photos are in the show notes. After evacuation, Dad spent six months training as a vehicle mechanic. During this period, my eldest sister was conceived. However, he was transported to North Africa, where he served until 1945 with the Eighth Army. My sister was three years old before my father saw her. He never spoke much of his experiences. I'm 76 now. I've only known peace. It was because of men like my dad, a humble man, who made this possible. My dad was my hero. However, I don't think he ever got over those war years. That's from Robert Goff on the WW2 Stories of Chaos and Courage Facebook page. Um, If you subscribe to that, you'll be overwhelmed with brilliant war stories. Here's another one. From Thomas W. Gray, and this is the 8th Air Force Historical Society Facebook page. Links to all of these things are in the show notes. Thomas says, My grandfather worked at the Ford Willow Run plant during World War II. He worked on the line, helping to build B-24 heavy bombers. His main job for three years was working in the aft fuselage compartment as an electrician. He tried enlisting three times during the war because he felt he wasn't contributing his fair share to the war effort. He said he always felt guilty about not serving on the front lines in combat during the war. But the army and navy had both told him that his job at the plant was way more important. I think they were right. And there's a brilliant photograph of the... um, production line for all these aeroplanes in the factory in the show notes and robert says seeing that picture just confirms how i feel about my grandfather he contributed his fair share to winning the war that much i know to be true in my eyes he is a hero he once told me that on every b24 he worked on <laughs> he would sign his name and leave a note to whatever aircrew would fly the plane. He'd always write it on the wall of the fuselage, right above the right waist gunner's position, inside the aircraft. Sometimes he'd write out a prayer, or just leave a note and sign his name, saying, Thank you. So that's from Thomas W. Gray on the 8th Air Force Historical Society Facebook page. Here's another story out of the blue on my YouTube channel. Jake from Pee Wee Valley Backyard RC wrote, and uh, he says, I found your podcast on Spotify and loved every episode. As a welder, I have plenty of time to binge listen, and I often find myself drifting off and thinking about the stories of my grandfather being in France and Germany during the war. I once dreamt about how strangely hot it was underfoot on the beaches. Then I realised I'd welded my foot to the floor of a Ford Fiesta. <laughs> sorry, that bit's completely made up, I'm sorry. Sorry, Jay. Um, I wish I knew more about my grandfather, but all I remember is that he was out of Fort Knox, Kentucky. He was in armour. Please keep up the great work. Well, Jay... I did a bit of research, well, Bing did, and I found out that during World War II, Fort Knox was a major training centre for the US armoured forces. It was used to train soldiers in the use of tanks and other armoured vehicles, and the training included driving, maintenance and tactics. So if a soldier who was trained in armour at Fort Knox then fought in France and Germany... They would most likely have been part of an armoured unit used to support the infantry by providing cover fire when breaking through enemy lines. They also attacked enemy positions and protected supply lines. So, Jake, hot-foot it to the Research tab at my website, fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk, lest anyone forgets, and it'll give you a few leads to learning more about your grandad. 2 talkcom is my favourite and, of course, try and get hold of his service records. Good luck, chum. Another family story now from Louis from uh, New Zealand. Uh, Hi, Paul. My name is Louis and I'm a 13-year-old living on Waiheke Island, Auckland, New Zealand. I live close to a coastal battery on Waiheke Island. In World War II, there were submarine sightings there. My mum's from England, and my great-uncle served as a major for a supply depot. My dad grew up in New Guinea, but he's a Kiwi at heart. He told me many stories, but there's one in which he went for a walk in the jungle and found an old Japanese supply depot with the remains. So, listener, this is recent years. He spent two days burying all the dead people. He then found an artillery shell. It was still live, which he brought back as a souvenir. When he reached his house and showed my grandfather's shell, he shouted at him to be careful with it. They drilled a hole and took out the explosive. Another thing he told me, was when he went to boarding school, he'd often visit a World War II Pacific veteran who had a sword that he'd taken from a dead Japanese officer. My grandpa on my mother's side is still alive and he was born in 37. He lived in Liverpool and survived the Blitz, as did my grandmother who has a lot of old stuff like her air raid gas mask. She sent me my great-great-grandfather's custom-fitted hat and a bowler hat and a bracelet from the 1920s. One of my family members was killed at the Somme in World War I by a sniper while he was taking a wee. My great-great-uncle Gordon owned a factory in England and the big man himself came round, Churchill, during the Blitz, but he didn't get to see him, because he'd passed out from lack of sleep through working to keep the factory safe at night. Well, Louis, I'm surprised you've, you're still alive, that you've, you've come into this world in one piece after all that lot. But Louis adds, "I'm six foot one <laughs> at 13, because my dad's six foot five, and my grandfather is Gordon Trevor, six foot nine. He was a rower and a world record holder in the 1960s and represented New Zealand and Great Britain. He still rows today but indoors because he's just had a hip replacement surgery. He was in the Blitz and became New Zealand's biggest sports donator for 12 years. He donated sports equipment and improved sports and art facilities and a swimming pool for schools. Louis, thank you very much for that contribution. Brilliant. Oh, and a final comment from Louis. Paul, I'm glad I could share these stories with you. I often listen to you before I go to bed. You have inspired me to know more about my ancestors. Louis, thanks for sharing your family stories. It's incredible that uh, for many years after the war, people like your own dad could still walk out into the jungle and find random stuff like he did absolutely amazing and that's so good i'll pass on mike showboards how good is that award from the previous episode hereby awarded to you louis thank you very much turning back to ww2 stories of chaos and courage again now i noticed this post on that facebook page uh and i saw that regular listener eddie toms had liked it so i I reckoned it must be worth reading of course eddie has been a regular contributor to the contributor to the show and his father was a seventh green howard so i hope you're listening eddie um So this is to discount any misapprehensions about Spitfires landing on the beach in Dunkirk because the post says, Remember the scene from the film Dunkirk in 2017 where it showed a Spitfire performing a forced landing on the beaches at Dunkirk? Well, it appears that this did indeed happen. Squadron leader Stevenson of 19 Squadron made a forced landing on the beach on the very first day of air cover operations over Dunkirk. He was ultimately taken prisoner by the Germans and imprisoned as a POW at Colditz Castle. There's a photograph in the show notes and it's of an abandoned Spitfire on the beach at Dunkirk with two German soldiers looking on. As Squadron Leader of 19 Squadron, based at RAF Duxford, the pilot was shot down on Sunday the 26th of May 1940 in Spitfire IAN-3200, coded QV, while covering the evacuation of the Dunkirk beaches during Operation Dynamo. According to the Imperial War Museum, Stevenson was captured on the beach in France shortly after crashing. Multiple escape attempts led to his transfer to Offlag 4C at Colditz Castle, where he would participate in the creation of the never-flown Colditz Cock Glider. Following the war, he served as the personal pilot for King George VI. Remarkably, Spitfire N3200 was discovered and salvaged from the beach in 1986. And restored to flight in March two thousand and fourteen, with the markings worn when it was downed. That's WW two stories of chaos and courage recommended. Coming up to the anniversary show now, um, not yet, but you know, <laughs> soonish. Um, Many thanks to those who've already completed the survey form for the forthcoming 10-year anniversary episode. Um, I've had some brilliant responses and ideas for this episode and I've been truly inspired. So if anyone else has any thoughts, you're not too late. I've amended the survey form to include this subject. Thank you very much. Just to round up now, I'd like to say thank you so very much for your continued support and making the time to listen to me. I wish I could have brought out more episodes this year, but doing the narration for Save the Last Bullet really made me push other work aside. Um, Save the Last Bullet about the German boy soldier for the audiobook was easily the equivalent of 20 podcast episodes in terms of effort, and it's very much in the mold of my style. So, you you can listen to it on Audible free if you get the right deal. So, check it out via Amazon. And please, before I move on to the PSs, can I politely remind you to uh, make sure you follow or subscribe to the show in your listening app? It makes a big difference to my ratings if you're actually subscribed or following. So this week, please check out the show in your app and make sure you've ticked the follow button or whatever you need to do. At this point, I'd like to say thank you so much to Sue Metcalf in Canada for her help in getting this episode done, for going the extra mile to dig out the photographs and memories that put the icing on the cake some of which you haven't heard yet. I've got the usual PSs coming up, which you do not want to miss. Ramsgate, Royal Artillery and Drommel feature, maybe more. There may or may not be a short ad break following this pause. Here's the PS. My goodness, I've got some super stories to share with you now. This one is uh, about the Ramsgate lifeboat. And this is from the France and Flanders campaign 1940 Facebook page. Another one that's good to to keep an eye on. Uh, The story goes that there's a bit of narrative between two boats sailing around the English Channel at at the time of Dunkirk, obviously. "'I cannot see who you are. Are you a naval party?' asks the captain. "'No, sir. We are men that crew the Ramsgate lifeboat.' The voice called back. Thank you, and thank God for such men as you have this night proved yourselves to be. And who are you? We're the crew of the Prudential lifeboat. (laughs) Think about that one. I had to. Um, Here's another Dunkirk memoir, The Nightmare That Was Dunkirk. This is from the BBC People at War website. It's contributed by the son of, uh, no name given, of Dunkirk evacuee Albert George Heath, who was in the Royal Artillery. So this is about an evacuation from Dunkirk, in Albert's own words, written 20 years after it happened. The 361 5th London Battery and 91 4th London Field Regiment Royal Artillery from Lewisham with its 25-pounder guns, was dug in near Lille, France, on the 21st of May, 1940. Listener, I think that was the same day that those French divisions were at Lille, which I mentioned earlier. Anyway, this was during the Dunkirk retreat, and not before the formal evacuation, but it was around the point that Bob Metcalfe told of his experiences in his book. Continuing... Our position took a direct hit from enemy artillery. My right leg was shattered below the knee. I also had a gunshot wound in my back in the shoulder. Battery medics splintered the leg. There was no treatment to the gunshot wound, which was open and bleeding. I was evacuated to the Regimental Aid Post, the RAP. The RAP was evacuated on the night of 21st of May. Before leaving, further treatment consisted of half a bottle of cognac. Calvados, we presume, sir. (laughs) On the 22nd of May, my wounds were examined at the field hospital. The wounds were dressed, and morphine tablets were administered to ease the pain. The first signs of gangrene began to appear. Between 22nd and 25th of May, the field hospital was evacuated. During this time, I received further minor injuries, but no more treatment other than two morphine tablets. On the 25th of May, I was admitted to another field hospital. Gangrene was taking a firmer hold of the right leg and it had to be amputated above the knee to prevent further complications. For the next three days, my treatment consisted of further morphine doses but no changes of dressings, and during this time I eventually arrived at Dunkirk. Whilst in the ambulance on the quayside, a bomb exploded nearby. Shrapnel ripped into the ambulance, severing my right arm. Then the ambulance caught fire. French sailors pulled me from the burning ambulance, but I suffered burns to my head and face. I was embarked onto the SS Canterbury. Then another bomb exploded in the water beside the boat, which pitched and I ended up in the harbour. This time the crew pulled me out. On the twenty-ninth of May we arrived in Dover at four in the morning. I was put on an ambulance train, destination unknown. This later turned out to be Blackburn. During the journey a soldier in a lower berth complained to the train staff of blood dripping from my arm. The arm was treated for the first time since the incident in the ambulance on Dunkirk Harbour. Slats from a packing case had been used as splints and it was only on arrival in Blackburn when the injuries were fully assessed and they found the packing case slats had been applied, nailed to my arm. During the next five years, my dad underwent 31 major operations on both his arm and leg. Until his death in 1985, at the age of 75, dad must at times have been in terrible pain from these injuries, but he never let the real pain show. He worked up to retirement at 65 and led as active a life as his disability would allow. He was a very brave man. That's Albert Heath. This is another BBC People's War contribution from James Bradley and this is another account of Dunkirk, uh, 1940. I joined up because I thought it was necessary for all young people to consider that their freedom was at risk. Hitler was making his usual speeches and upsetting a lot of people, causing trouble in Europe, and I couldn't sit back and just let the invasion of other people's countries go on. I felt I ought to be one of the people, and there must have been millions of them, who wanted peace and an honourable world to live in. I joined up in March 1939. I believed there was going to be a war, although I hoped there wouldn't be, and I wanted to be trained so that when the war started, I could fulfil my obligations to my country. I also realised that we'd told Hitler very plainly that if he attacked Poland, he was at war with us. I intended to be there, and to be heard, and to be seen because you cannot let freedom slip through your fingers. I wanted to be part of something that would bring the world together again. I was a Bren gun machine gunner, first class. I was very enthusiastic. You could use it in close combat and on aircraft. You could also put it on fixed lines to be put into a gap where the enemy would come through. I thought it was a wonderful gun, and I passed out first class. Then I had my badge with BG on it, Bren Gunner. We went to France and landed at Cherbourg, drove all the way along the coast and went to the Belgium frontier. At that time, I thought it would be like the First World War because we were putting up barbed wire. At first, Hitler sat behind his tanks, but when they knocked holes in the line and came crashing through, we were in a different type of warfare. When we first arrived in France, it was like peacetime. We got on very well with the French people, and we used to go for day trips. But then Hitler struck at the Belgians and the Dutch, and we moved forward, which seemed strange. We dug trenches, and he, Hitler, had a mobile army. I hoped our generals knew this. You got the feeling that things were getting a little bit questionable. We took everything, the guns, Bren gun carriers, everything we had, and dashed into Belgium. There were no prepared positions for us, it was a mobile war now. The Germans had superior numbers in the air force, they had superior tanks, and they had superior equipment. Basically, we were outnumbered. We moved back, and there were battles and retreats and so on. We could see that the Belgians were streaming back and the whole thing was going over the side but we got back into France and fought in one or two places. Guns were firing and we were giving them a bad time. I didn't think they were going to put up with that for very long but then overcame 60 dive bombers. I've never seen anything quite like it. They plastered the hill guns were blowing up and we were told that we'd have to stand and fight to the last. Then we were told that we had to get out of there. We had to save the regiment, or what was left of the regiment. They said that we were to get a rifle and a bayonet, and after that we were on our own. We had to get back to Dunkirk. If they'd told us to get back to New York, I couldn't have been more surprised, because I didn't know where Dunkirk was. I began to think to myself, "'I've got to survive. I must survive to fight on in this war.' "'I saw where the shells were landing "'and where their mortars and their machine guns "'were slashing away at the undergrowth. "'A track went downhill. It was hollowed out "'and there were some dead English soldiers in there. "'I crawled down that channel. "'When I got to the bottom, and after hiding, "'I made my way into a wooded area, and I thought, "'Dunkirk?' I didn't know where it was, but I thought it must be north, so I started heading north. I found a group of British soldiers near a bridge. They said, come on, quickly, quickly, hurry along. We've got to blow this bridge, but we're waiting for certain vehicles to come through. In the meantime, you can join us, because the Germans are getting near. A sergeant was told to put me in number four position, whatever that may have been anyway he said come on have you got plenty ammunition yes yes i've got plenty he said i'll take you round the back here there's a slit trench by a barn you go in there and if they're sniping at us don't take on more than you can handle if you get a chance knock off as many as you can and then he said i wish you good luck i said this is a wonderful slit trench it's cut nice and square." He must have been a good guy that did that, he said. Unfortunately, he died in it, which gave me a feeling of sudden cold. I was in a trench that a man had died in. It was a really hot day, and looking back behind me, I could see a house. The door opened, and a woman came out dressed in black, an old woman with grey hair. She saw me. I was dying for thirst so I gestured aqua she waved went inside and closed the door and I thought well that's bad luck but the next minute the door opened again and she brought out a tray carrying cut glass and a jug of water she walked across the farmyard and there were bullets going over and a few mortars crashing I thought she was mad she came over to me I couldn't speak French she couldn't speak English but she said something like ma bonne amie, and gave me the water and I said get going get going go she walked straight back and halfway there she stopped and turned to spit waving her fist and said something like boche." I thought she's some woman I wouldn't cross her eventually I did get to the coast. When I came to the sand dunes I could see that Dunkirk was a blazing mass of burning oil and a battle was going on. I moved along the sand hills to La Panne, a little to the right of Dunkirk and there were hundreds and hundreds of soldiers on the sand. Ships were coming in, trying to pick up the soldiers. I thought, they'll never get these people off here, but we just had to be disciplined. "'I saw the most magnificent bit of British discipline there. "'They went down in the water, stood in rows of four, "'and the tide came in, and then the tide went out. "'And then it came back in again. "'I remember three tides, and I stayed there a night. "'There was the odd guy who left for obvious purposes, "'to nip back over the sand dunes. "'Then he'd come back, and a hand would go up, "'and someone would say, "'Over here, over here!' It was terribly British. I think I became a man there. Unfortunately, the dive bombers were knocking out the ships and terrible things were happening. I saw them hit a destroyer packed with men on board and it went on its side. Hundreds of men into the sea, thrashing about there. Many of them couldn't swim, I'm sure. The next morning I looked around. There were dead men lying about, nobody could do anything about that. But there were some lads moving around, and some badly wounded. A little ship came along. It looked like a Dutch coaster, a real old tub. Those on board stopped, shouted and waved. I thought this was the time for us to move on, but somebody said, No, no, they're waving at us to tell us to stay where we are. They lowered some small boats down to the sea and in inshore. We had to get into one of these little boats, which should have taken about three people, but there was about eight of us in it. The water line was getting near the top. They dropped a rope ladder down the ship's side, and we had to climb up that. Some of the chaps were so weak, they fell back into the sea, so they threw ropes down, and tried to tie them and pull them up. A dispatch rider, a guy who came from Hastings, was behind me and I thought he must be mad because he was wearing a tin hat, a rifle and all his equipment. If he fell into the water, he wouldn't have stood a chance. He moved around in front of me and there was no panic. It must be done calmly, I thought. If we're going to get there, let's do it like real men. Then he fell into the water I shouted to him, but he went down. Bubbles were coming up, and he just went down, down. I couldn't do anything. Dunkirk changed my character completely. It changed my thinking about soldiering, actually about killing. Accepting it as part of your day, which you'd never do otherwise. You fight back the fear, you put a lid on it. It's a way of life that takes over because you want to survive. The feeling for survival is a wonderful thing. This is another one from the France and Flanders campaign Facebook page. Uh, Recollections of Lieutenant J.W.R. Cock Wilbur, Royal Signals. 51st Heavy Regiment, Royal Artillery. Around 30th of May, 1940. Along the esplanade at one place there was a small encampment of French soldiers and they very decently held out mess tins to my men. Some of my chaps started to fall out and partake in the food offered by the French. I probably overdid it, but I took their mess tins and turned them upside down, tipped the food out and said, There's no permission to halt, you march on. One of our officers was a rather truculent sort of chap and when certain other groups of soldiers tried to muscle in on our embarkation he took out his revolver and fired shots across the front of them. I wasn't prepared to do that. We formed up very near them all and it really did work according to plan. We were called forward and a destroyer, HMS Scimitar, came in, stern first, alongside this ruined mole, and with great difficulty, we scrambled aboard. We were terribly lucky. We embarked on HMS Scimitar, and although the officers were put down in the wardroom, I preferred to go on deck. The troops were lying about and falling asleep immediately all over the superstructure, I believed there were minefields out to sea, so we started out parallel to the coast, and when we went near the heights of Calais, we were fired on by German field gunners, which meant a lot of water spouts were popping up around us. We put on a terrific turn of speed, I'm used to boats, but that stern wave was about 12 feet high, curling over the stern, we really did move. When we saw the white cliffs looming up, I was down in the little wardroom with the other officers. I think we were all too tired for either sorrow, jubilation or any feeling. We disembarked and we were taken to a train where ladies brought us tea and mugs, which we were delighted to have. We were told the train was bound for London, which suited me because I'm a Londoner, but as soon as it set off, all of us went straight to sleep. And I woke up in Dorset. I've got just a bit more to share with you now. Uh, just a short roundup of the post-Dunkirk situation. Um, approximately 850 private boats sailed from Ramsgate, and over 250 of them were lost. Churchill and Admiral Ramsey hoped to rescue between 30 and 40,000 troops and the combined efforts of the RAF, Navy and the Little Ships rescued 338,000. We've, we've all probably heard that figure. But on top of that, from the end of Operation Dynamo at Dunkirk, if you include Operation Cycle from Le Havre, elsewhere across the Channel Coast, and the termination of Operation Aerial, there was another 191,870 troops were rescued, bringing the total of military and civilian personnel returned to Britain during the Battle of France to well over half a million, including 360-odd thousand British troops. For every seven soldiers who escaped through Dunkirk, one man was left behind as a prisoner of war. The majority of these prisoners were sent on forced marches into Germany and Poland. Prisoners reported brutal treatment by their guards, including beatings, starvation, and murder. The rescue operation turned a military disaster into a story of heroism, which served to raise the morale of the British. The phrase Dunkirk spirit is still used to describe courage and solidarity. ...in the face of adversity. That's pretty much the end of the Dunkirk bits. Um, I don't want to finish this episode... ...leaving you bereft of insight... ...into Bob's war after Dunkirk. Um, I have to say that Bob's book is just so full... ...of first-hand details... ...and uh, I felt spoilt for choice... ...over what to share with you... But here we go on the Battle of Mereth. Um This is a passage from Bob's memoir, the Battle of Mareth in Tunisia. It was fought in the last couple of weeks of March 43. The battle was just one more of a massive several dozen battles fought in North Africa in the Western Desert as the Allies fought their way west from Egypt via the battles of Alamein, Tobruk and so many others. Mareth preceded the Battle of Wadi Akarit, which was a week later in early April, and which Dad fought in. Um, during Mareth, my Dad was still travelling west from Egypt to join his battalion, and at this point Bob was in the 6th Green Howards, same as my Dad. Here goes. During our advance westward it was policy for the army to take the airfields and landing strips for the Air Force fighter squadrons in order to keep close support to the troops. Having travelled hundreds of miles over sand and more sand, the army eventually came to the foot of the Matmata Hills in Tunisia, near Medenine, where the enemy was blowing craters in the runways of the local airstrip with a long-range gun firing from the Mareth line. A platoon of Gurkhas was recruited from the 4th Indian Division with orders to permanently silence the gun and to bring back proof of their actions within 36 hours. Within the allotted time, the Gurkhas returned, struggling with sandbags containing parts of the breech block of the gun to prove the mission had been a success. They also delivered the heads of the gun crew for good measure. Mareth was a French outpost on the Tripolitanian-Tunisian border that had been prepared by the French government pre-war for a possible strong point against the Italian army. Their intention had been to establish a defence line similar to the Maginot line in France. This had been taken over and reinforced by the Germans. It was here that we were to meet Rommel's 15th and 21st Panzer Divisions and 90th Light Division, together with the young fascist Italians, a formidable force to say the least. Believing the Battle of Mareth would be a bloodbath, it was with a great deal of trepidation that we prepared for the oncoming action. We commenced intensive training about 12th of March 1943 with 44th Royal Tank Regiment, consisting of about 52 Valentine tanks, each equipped with a two-pounder gun and two machine guns. Listen, the 69th Brigade comprised 6th and 7th Greenhowards and the 5th East Yorks. Prior to the attack on the main defences, 69th Infantry Brigade pierced the outpost positions by infiltrating and probing the minefields. Each battalion in the brigade provided a THUG party, a fighting patrol consisting of a platoon of 30 men. The job of each THUG party was to encircle the enemy and bring back a prisoner in order to identify the opposing formation. The THUG party of 6th Battalion, the Green Howards, was to operate on 5th Battalion, East Yorkshire Regiment's front and the East Yorkshire's party on ours. In the event the thug parties were captured, the enemy would not be able to accurately identify our unit positions. We then had to proceed through the enemy minefields at the same time, laying down a white tape marking a safe path of approach for those following later. We were preceded by the Royal Engineers using mine detectors, who, on detecting a mine, would disarm and remove it. Most of the mines encountered were Italian BS mines armed by hidden trip wires. When the wire was stepped on, or tripped over, the mines jumped about five feet in the air, exploded, and showered you with ball bearings with devastating effect. As I had only recently rejoined the battalion, I was appointed second-in-command of Air Company under Major C.H. Peter Gardiner who tripped a mine which had not been detected. Wounded, he had to be evacuated, and I took command of A Company in his stead. Little did we know at the time that the 1st British Army, together with 2nd US Corps, was applying a pincer movement on the Axis armies, and that the enemy was worried about being trapped between the two Allied forces. Having breached the outpost positions... We came to the main defences, which were protected by an anti-tank ditch that had to be scaled when there was a lull before the storm. This is the time when your mind tries to look into the unknown and beyond, with time to spare, as it were, when all preparations leading up to the start line have been attended to, when the Padre offers a prayer, when small groups gather for reassurance that all will be well. It was in this atmosphere that our carrier officer, Captain Peter Delph, and I were sitting on the edge of a slit trench when we heard the drone of approaching aircraft. Peering up into the clear blue sky, we eventually spotted them coming from the direction of the 1st Army front, flying at about 10,000 feet. As they became more visible... We recognised them as B-26 Mitchell's light bombers of the USAF, about 500 in all. They took a wide, sweeping turn to be immediately overhead, to turn again and fly directly over the enemy. We expected them to release their bombs. They didn't. Instead, they again swung over our position with bomb doors open and released the whole cargo over 50th Division. Needless to say, we dived for cover. (laughs) With friends like that, you don't need enemies. God bless America. I guess you could call it a wake-up call, as that night we moved forward to the start line. We were to attack in conjunction with 50th Royal Tank Regiment. It was intended that 6th Battalion, the Greenhowers, would be conveyed into battle with a section of six or seven infantry riding on each tank. This order was changed. The tanks were now to precede the infantry. Thank God for us, for 50 out of the 52 tanks were knocked out within an hour, primarily by the enemy's deadly 88mm guns. The operation was a catastrophe and the battle plan was changed. Fiftieth Division was to attack with the support of a heavy artillery barrage on a prearranged fire plan. It was to be a night attack with a one hour concentration of twenty five pounder, four and a half and five and a half medium guns, some four hundred guns on a four mile front, the most intensive barrage since El Alamein. It was due to start at nine p.m. We waited, and waited, and waited. At 11pm, we received orders that the barrage and the attack had been cancelled. Intelligence had discovered that the enemy was pulling out. Prior to this situation, they had been shelling our positions with increasing intensity on 151st Brigade Front, the Durham Brigade. This was a common tactic to mislead us into believing that an attack was imminent. In fact, they'd been preparing to pull out all along. What do you do with all that pent-up tension and no enemy to take it out on? You press on to the next battle line. During a pause in the action, I had been joined by a friend of mine, Jack Mansell, who'd been transferred to our 7th Battalion as Company Commander. Jack was awarded a military cross for his leadership in this operation. He told me in confidence that his CO, Lieutenant Colonel Derek Seagram, had been brilliant in action. He and his intelligence officer had scaled the anti-tank ditch and with Tommy gun and grenades had captured 70 panzer grenadiers. Seagram was going to be recommended for the Victoria Cross. This was verified when we returned to Alexandria about a month later. Unfortunately, Seagram was killed at the Battle of Wadiacaris, which was our next encounter with the enemy. And listener, if you want more of an insight into what happened at the Battle of Wadiacaris with Seagram, go to episode three. And while you're there, pick up a number of my earlier episodes as well, because I never cease to be amazed how relatively few of them get listened to compared with the older ones. They're still doing well, but not as many. And yet, some of my earlier episodes are real classic episodes, so uh, give them a chance, do. I know I'm preaching to the converted when I uh, speak to people who've binged this show some four times or more, but looking at my stats, there are clearly people who've listened to the later episodes a lot of times, but not so much the earlier episodes. I'll leave that thought with you. So, Bob and the Greenhowards help kick the enemy out of North Africa. Next stop, Sicily, in July 1943. And this next passage pertains to the end of Bob's campaign in Sicily, where they end up in Messina, prior to the invasion of Italy. On the map, Messina is in the top right-hand corner of the island. We join Bob just at the end of the campaign, where he says, Oh, these were hectic days, all right, full of excitement. Although the whole Sicilian operation only lasted 38 days the Germans had escaped across the Straits of Messina to the mainland of Italy, leaving the Italians to their fate. Under General Guzzoni, they capitulated. 151 sub-area was in support of main HQ 8th Army and followed close behind that formation as they advanced towards Messina and the Italian mainland. It was about this time that I met and became acquainted with a fascinating individual. Sergenti Maggiore Gallo had been one of Field Marshal Erwin Rommel's interpreters in North Africa. He'd been attached to Rommel's HQ in the desert as liaison and interpreter between the Germans and Italians in Libya. A native of Milan... Gallo had worked on the stock exchange there prior to the war and spoke seven languages. He'd been wounded at the Battle of Mareth in Tunisia while fighting with the Germans and evacuated back to Italy where he was sent to hospital in Milan. Because of his previous connection with the Germans in North Africa, when he was found fit again, he was assigned to rejoin them in Sicily. On his way there and, as he told me, being of reasonable intelligence. He decided he had no further interest in rejoining the Germans, so he had hidden in the mountains until the Germans had retreated from Sicily. He then surrendered to our HQ in Messina, was checked from a security point of view, cleared and attached to me as my interpreter in Sicily and Italy. He was to be with me for the next year and a half. Gallo was loyal and trustworthy and told me a great deal about Rommel, to whom he had been devoted. Among other things, he told me Rommel was always in the leading squadron of armoured cars in the vanguard of the attack, when at the same time his own generals would be 800 miles behind the lines, safe and secure indulging in the proverbial wine, women and song. Again, we see here an example of respect that one man gives another, regardless of which side he's on, when bravery is the factor. I couldn't fault Gallo, his admiration of such a man, and history was to bear witness to Rommel's strength of character. Interestingly, Gallo was in Rommel's HQ at Beda Litoria, when the commando raid of 18th of November 1941 had taken place. The raid was led by Colonel Geoffrey Keyes, who lost his life during the attack and was awarded the Victoria Cross posthumously for his bravery. Rommel had returned to HQ only after the attack, but in time to see Keyes' body being placed in an ambulance. Rommel took off the Iron Cross from around his own neck and placed it around that of Keys, his sign of respect for a worthy opponent. Do you want some more? <laughs> oh, go on then. He's a little postscript, maybe a bit more. Um, carrying on. From where we were, one Sergeant Terry, who accompanied Keys on the raid, escaped and eventually found his way back to the canal zone for reassignment, where he was attached to my unit at the ITC in Geneva. Terry told me that Keys had trained his unit in the art of this type of assault weeks before the attack took place. He'd impressed upon his men to never stand in open doorways. Keyes forgot his own advice, however. While framed within an entryway to one of the HQ rooms, he was gunned down with a Schmeisser machine pistol by a German soldier hidden within. Nearly a year later, while in Italy, Gallo would relate the same story to me, also from first-hand knowledge. He'd been in the same building when the attack had taken place and had seen it all happening from the third story. Wow. Our main HQ was now established in Messina in Sicily. This northeast area was the home of mafia families so notorious worldwide. One day I was traveling along the waterfront there over a door i read a sign in english this is the birthplace of al capone the famous american gangster we also had a detachment hq at the small port of milazzo about 10 miles over the mountains on the north coast of the island and i was detached from messina hq to work there One of the main resources for the local economy was the growing of lemons, limes and oranges. For many years Mussolini had commandeered the whole crop of the island and with the proceeds had built Tripoli in North Africa as a tourist attraction to offset the advantage that Alexandria in Egypt had produced for that economy. The Sicilians weren't too happy with this arrangement as they felt that they'd not benefited from their labour, and on the only occasion that Mussolini visited the island of Sicily, an attempt was made on his life. Arriving in Milazzo, I found the whole dock area covered with hundreds of barrels of orange and lemon peel, all earmarked for export to England. These barrels of peel had been on the docks since June 1940, so this is three years later, when Mussolini had declared war on Britain. In normal times, the procedure would be to roll the barrels into the sea for a period of time so that the seawater could soak the barrels. This created an acid reaction, causing the sugar to crystallise. The candied peel which resulted was then shipped to England, where it was used in the traditional English Christmas cakes. Of course, since we were at war, this profitable trade was suspended. Sicilians, not being famous for a forgiving nature, I could only hope the locals wouldn't get it into their heads to target me for this situation as they had Mussolini. Oh, Christmas, that reminds me. (laughs) We've got the Christmas episode coming up soon. I've got a final PS from Sue Metcalf here and it is an absolute cracker. Sue says, Dad was interviewed by the Northern Echo newspaper in May 2000, the last regimental reunion he attended at age 85. One of his nurses at nearby Sedgefield who saw the article recognised him. She pulled out a picture of Dad post-Dunkirk And his thank you note to her and the nurses who looked after him when he was wounded. And she'd kept the letter all those years as a keepsake. There's a picture in the show notes. How wonderful. Now, that should be the end of the show. But I do tease you something rotten, because it's not. I've got an even better PS from Sue to follow. There's a letter in Sue's papers which she sent me. It's addressed to Mr. Robert W. Metcalfe in Ontario and it reads at the top a formal letter heading with an address in Stuttgart, Germany, dated 2001 and it says, Dear Sir, let me express my gratitude for your book and for your dedication. I'm reading your book with intellectual profit and with respect for the soldiers. I was drafted January the 1st, a week after my 15th birthday and my military career ended up in a French prison camp. Since this time, we have had a place in Europe thanks to the grace of God. With best wishes, I remain yours sincerely. I'll tell you who it's from in a second, but that was so short and so much to take in, I'm going to read it again. Dear Sir, let me express my gratitude for your book and for your dedication. I'm reading your book with intellectual profit and with respect for the soldiers. I was drafted January the 1st, a week after my 15th birthday, and my military career ended up in a French prison camp. Since this time, we've had a place in Europe, thanks to the grace of God. With my best wishes, I remain, yours sincerely, Manfred Rommel. Now, Sue says Manfred Rommel was mayor of Stuttgart and was Field Marshal Erwin Rommel's son. She said, my dad had so much respect for Rommel that he contacted Manfred and sent him a copy of his book to express his appreciation for his father as a professional soldier. And the German gentleman replied, how seriously good is that? I think that deserves a wow and an oof my word too. I've got to go now. I've got a Christmas episode to prepare. Crackers crossed, I manage it in time before Rudolph rampages through your neighbourhood and before Santa strafes your street with snowballs. I'm Paul Cheel saying bye-bye now.